for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. Today's guest is Jennifer Ludden from the class of 1988. She is the national correspondent for National Public Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there, John. So I am thrilled to get to know you. This is a full disclosure, my first time meeting you, and I want to hear all about your career, but we'll take it back to the beginning as we usually do. Where did you grow up and how did you come upon Syracuse and the radio station? I grew up mostly in Tennessee. I was looking to go super far away <laughs> and I got the brochure for the new house school. I was like, yeah, something, something in that. I went up there without any proper winter clothing, honestly. Um, <laughs> and the big thing, thing, the random, the random thing that changed my life. Never thought about radio for many years. The random thing that changed my life was having Sue Mandel as my dorm mom. Aww. And one <laughs> and one of our early meetings, she just said, have you guys ever seen a radio station? Would you like to? And we're like, ooh, cool. And she said, great. Meet me Monday at, at seven, I think. But I thought it was just going to be a tour. And it was a recruitment meeting for <laughs> newscasters. <laughs> I was like, well, that was a little tricky, but I don't know. I'm not good at saying no. So I'm like, okay, sure, I'll sign up. That was what started me off and changed every decision I made afterwards. Although I still didn't plan on being in radio for a while, you know, in the end, looking back, that's what made the difference. It's funny. We have an episode with Sue and Rob. So they talk about uh, their time and meeting at the station and getting together as well. So I assume news is where you started. Was that the bulk of what you did at the station, Jennifer? Yes. I was a bit of a nonfiction nerd among my friends at Newhouse. A lot of them went to Hollywood and I was doing, you know, documentary type stuff. But so I started at Newscast. Um, at various points, I had different things. I, I think I had an evening music shift at some point very briefly i believe i was on the morning show that was a, a little random also <laughs> um but i did this that and the other and i was so lucky to walk in in 1984 is when i arrived at syracuse and the you know it went on fm that year and it was just very lucky on my part there was so much excitement about it and i just remember being so impressed by all the people who'd come before and were clearly making this happen. Yeah, I remember anybody who uh, was in that mid-80s timeline talking about how when the station went on FM that they had just this massive recruitment of everybody wanted to be a part of it and that buzz on campus. I'm glad to hear that you got there just in time to be a part of it. Well, you know, it was the student-run station, right? If you're going to do it, you want to be the ones doing it. I know there was an NPR station there. People mentioned it, but it's like, ah, they got adults there, like, or, you know, old people. And, um, the thrill was just being able to do everything and learn as you went and people just managing the technical side, the marketing side, the news side, the sports, everyone doing it themselves, just being part of that commitment and talent. It was incredible. I love hearing stories like this. Are there specific moments from your time at the station that stick out to you as having informed your career since or, or life since or any lessons you've learned? They're kind of funny, but there was some lesson. Funny's good. We can do funny too. <laughs> well, okay. One is a super embarrassing and this will be at my expense. No one else's. I remember very distinctly sophomore year, I'd come back from being home in Tennessee where I got a radio job my first summer because of having done this. Yes. I actually got my first job 
first summer of college, I I called up a radio station, this little country station in a the small town that I had gone to high school in. And um, I don't know why, but they hired me to go. It was a CBS affiliate and I had to write up the local newscast. They didn't let me on the air much, but I got up at like, I think it was 5.55 in the morning. I went by the sheriff's office, the police station, got the reports from overnight, wrote up a newscast for 6.30 and then like a few more in the morning. And then I would go cover school board meetings at night. It was exhausted, um, you know, staying up late and doing stories on those. I'm sure I only did that because I had been at JBC that year. School board meetings and police blotter talking about paying your dues. Early morning to late at night. Uh, it was great. So I come back from being at home where everyone thought I talked like a Yankee, mm-hmm. right? But I had not lost my accent. I had quite a Southern accent. And my first newscast back sophomore year, I'm in the booth and there were four guys, I don't remember who, in the booth behind the glass who started literally falling off their chair laughing at me because like from the get-go, I was like, you know, da 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 Z89 or something. I can't even <laughs> fake it now, but it was a super Southern accent. And I was so embarrassed in the middle of the third sentence, which was about a murder, I started giggling. Oh, and no. it was humiliating, oh. humiliating. And so I aggressively started losing my Southern accent then. <laughs> I remember that very distinctly. It's funny how stories just parallel throughout the years. I've talked to, obviously, we have a lot of New Yorkers who came up from the tri-state area to Syracuse, and they talk about losing a New York accent. For me personally, I grew up in Boston, and my favorite story to tell is we were at a Dunkin' Donuts at 2 a.m. coming back from the casino one night, and 17-year-old me asked for a marble crella. (laughs) the poor woman behind the counter said you want a what and my Syracuse friends are teasing me oh I'm sorry a marble Kreller please and uh, it was through sheer being made fun of in the dorm and being told by professors you're not going to get on the air with that Boston accent you better lose it so now it only comes out if I'm talking to my mother, my father, my brother, or my best friends. So I, you're. Yeah, I can't even fake it anymore. My family moved away, but yeah, it was It took four years. But anyway, that was fun. The other, um, the other memory that stuck out that um, in terms of lessons learned, sort of, you know, the commitment and work ethic on one of those evenings where I had a music shift, I just remember that not only the person after me, but the person after them failed to show. Oh, you got the double. (laughs) It was an all-nighter. It was an all-nighter. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to let us go off the air. Right. I'm not going to go dark. I don't know how many people were listening, but that's what you do. I mean, everyone is there making this work. I can't leave, you know, people oversleep, whatever. So I pulled an all-nighter playing music at JPZ and, you know, I think I learned something from it, I guess. (laughs) Oh, I think you say you learned something from that, but I think that's a reflection on you, knowing that you had that work ethic and that desire to not let it fall through the cracks and not go off the air that night. That's a reflection on you, I think. Well, it's because of the commitment of everyone there, really. I mean, okay, the people, there were two no-shows, but you know what? Everyone else had that, and it, it was part of the atmosphere. You kind of hone your skills at JPZ, you graduate, and you've had an incredible career since then that I want to get into with you. Where did you start and sort of walk me through all the things that you've done since graduation? Okay, so my main, one of my other main goals in going to SU was to live in New York City, which I know sounds silly, but it worked. I got a paid internship from an alumni at Con Edison, and I was doing, you know, educational videos for Con Ed, everything you wanted to know and more about asbestos and all that. (laughs) 
when that ended, I sort of did this, that, and the other. Among the things, I, 10, 10 wins, dd, 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 22 minutes will give you the world. And also uh, Rob Weingarten was huge in helping me. And at one point, he was managing a radio station. He and Sue were in Westchester County. And I would go and fill in when he needed, you know, vacation relief or something. I would do the afternoon newscast because, you know, just keep up those skills and make a little money. And I was kind of thinking, you know, I had the TRO, television, radio, film production. It was very television heavy. I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I'll go to TV. Um, at one point, I thought maybe I'll do PBS documentaries. And I, I did work at a documentary production firm in New York as a secretary. I was a super bad secretary. And I, I kind of thought, I just don't have the patience for that, you know, to spend a lot of years working your way up. And uh, I thought, I just want to do the stuff now. I want to interview people. I want to, you know, write my own stuff. And I also happened to have a roommate there who would come from National Public Radio, NPR. So it was a combination of having my JPZ experience and this roommate and I started listening to NPR and it kind of just clicked one day. I said, oh, public radio, I'll work at a station. So I started sending out lots of resumes and all. And, and what I did was I crafted together two stories. I borrowed my roommate's Walkman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember those? And I went around New York. I picked two stories at random and I interviewed people and I got a lot of sound and I needed to produce this and make it sound like the things they do at NPR, which I'd never really done with all that, you know, Ambie in the background. And Rob was incredible. He was so wonderful. He said, you can come use our station overnight. There's no one in the production studio. Ah. And he let me go up and I spent another all-nighter putting together, mixing those stories for my demo tape. And then I also had my newscast from his station. And I never was going to lie. Obviously, I would never say these aired anywhere if someone asked, but they never asked. Right. And I ended up, <laughs> they didn't. And I, I got my first job at Maine Public Radio using that tape. And uh, I mean, thank you, Rob and Sue. They just sort of set me off on the path I'm on. Again, a parallel throughout the years, throughout 50 years of this radio station, of paying it forward, of Rob and Sue talked about folks before them that had helped them out, and then they're paying it forward and helping you. I just love hearing stories like this. So how long were you in Maine, and where'd you go from there? A couple of years in Maine, and then I got the bug. I decided, you know, it's really far up there, and it's there's uh, New Brunswick on one side, French-speaking, and I did a lot of coverage of the Acadians up in the far north near the border with Canada, oh, wow. the ancestors of the Cajuns. And I started retaking French, and I, I just had this desire. I'm like, if I'm ever going to try and speak it, it's going to be now or never. So I... Uh, it was a recession, a, a, a mildish recession. I couldn't get, um, a lot of people weren't hiring or flying people for hiring. So I quit and I moved to Montreal Wow! to try and speak French. Quite an accent up there. I did my French a little bit backwards, but um, loved it so much. Uh, freelance for NPR, freelance for the Christian Science Monitor. Um, after I got there, then the NPR station WBUR heard me and said, oh, you're sounding great. Then they had an opening. I did a two or three years at WBUR. But I had this bug about maybe going overseas. An editor had said to me, hey, you should consider West Africa. We don't have anyone there. Wow. You've got your French, such as it is. And I ended up getting a contract with NPR in West Africa. Um, in the mid-90s, I was there. It, it was amazing. It was life-changing. I loved it so much. And then I had met a guy. We had a long-distance relationship. I said to my boss, you know, I really 
I kind of need to go back to New York. I love what I'm doing. He totally understood and said, well, what if I put you in Paris and you covered Africa from there? (laughs) And that's when I started. I stopped trying to plan life, right? So I was in Paris for like a little less than a year and a half with my boyfriend, now husband. Mm -hmm. And then we both got job offers. He was with ABC News. He'd taken time off to hang out in Paris, but he worked a lot there as well. And then we both got offers to be the Middle East bureau chief, he for ABC, me for NPR, based in Jerusalem. Wow. And that was the first place we both got jobs at the same place. And that was incredible. We covered like from Egypt to Iran, so much happening. And that's in the 90s. I mean, there's news breaking every three seconds at that period in time. Late 90, yeah, 99, 2000, 2001. It started out as being, you know, the big peace agreement that we were covering the Oslo Accord, peace in our time, the end of the Hundred Years Conflict, and then the second Intifada happened mm-hmm. with Israel Palestine. So that uh, was extremely busy. We also had the Israeli pullout from Lebanon. I had four trips to Iran that was incredibly uh, fascinating. They were much more open than they are right now. They were having elections. It was uh, Khatemi uh, was opening up to the media a little bit. Um, you know, it's heartbreaking to see what's happening in Iran now. It's it's always been a tough country, but it was a fascinating trip. It's really amazing to me, Jennifer, how much of the world you've seen at some pretty we'll say interesting times in history uh, in the last couple decades. Any stories from your time overseas that really stick out to you uh, in memory? Yeah, there was one time, you know, when you go to these places, you could say it's a stupid idea to go to a place where everyone else is evacuating. But once you're there, you do try to be very prudent and make safe decisions. But there was one time in Liberia, it was the day I was supposed to leave and the front line came right outside our hotel. (sighs) Uh, That was a little scary. You know, we were cowering on the floor and thinking about what, what if they come up the driveway and in, and it, it turned out to be fine in the end. We were very lucky. They had very good, the hotel owners had good security. Uh, they hired guys to be security outside and it passed, but that was pretty dicey. And then we were evacuated the next day. Mm-hmm. And it was a little sad because I remember like calling my mom to tell her I was fine. And, you know, she didn't even hear about it in the news. I mean, I had something on. No, but it, it was like, period. It was a civil war that had been going on for years. And you're just, you know, it's kind of humbling, like, you know. And, and so then I ended up, instead of reassuring her, saying, Mom, do you understand what happened to me oh, today? Were, you know? <laughs> um, the other thing, um, I was pregnant toward the end of my time in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And my boss is never made me do anything I was uncomfortable with. Okay. And I am grateful for that. I did probably in the end go on one trip. I, looking back, should not have. (laughs) Um, You know, the bulletproof vest, uh, when you're that pregnant, it doesn't cover the sides. It only covers the front and back. And, you know, firefight broke out near bias. And I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm being stupid. I need to stop thinking of myself. So the next story that popped up that Israel was kind of in, there were incursions into Palestinian areas around Bethlehem and so forth. And the next time I, I was like, I can't, I can't do that. And I reported it remotely. And, you know, it was a great story because instead of just walking around outside and finding whoever happened to be outside and speaking to them, I was catching people in their homes, mm. in their business, maybe that was, you know, locked up or whatever. And I feel like the interviews were more intimate yeah. in a way okay. and people were more open. And so um, it was a lesson 
Have you ever told your son, your daughter, have you ever told them about how uh, about being in that situation? Oh, I don't think they care. Maybe when they're older, they're they're college age now. They're not so impressed with mom, I don't think. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day. It's WJPZ at 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. Okay, so Middle East, Paris, Jerusalem, and then at some point you come back stateside, right? Is that next? Yes. Yeah. We decided, uh, though I've had colleagues who stayed abroad with children, we <laughs> we came on. My husband actually got a job here. And so we moved to D.C. And then I became a national correspondent for NPR. I've covered lots of things. I sort of have that journalistic ADD. Every five years, I got to I got to try something else. So I did some uh, national security post 9-11 reporting, wow. which made sense coming from the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, then I did immigration for a number of years. That was just fascinating. It was during the Bush administration. You know, you had this Republican administration trying to do this sweeping immigration reform like Ronald Reagan did way back when, when amnesty was not a nasty word. And uh, their party was really shifting under them. It just fell apart. This is George W. Bush, correct? The second Bush. Correct. And I traveled the country. A lot of what I did back then, there were a lot of raids on, you know, meat processing plants and other places that depended on undocumented workers. Mm -hmm. And just looking at how Americans weren't lining up for those jobs and, you know, the disruption to families. It was fascinating. And then I covered family issues, a lot of, uh, you know, the lack of paid family leave. That's changed some. The decline of marriage among some groups, the rise of out of wedlock births, which has really shot up in recent years. Huh. Yeah. Why is that? So this was really fascinating. I, I, I did not understand the connection, the economic link to this rise of out of marriage births for a while. I, I had to do a lot of reporting it's a real divide in um, education, right? So it's much more common with people who have not had a four-year degree. And basically what couples told me is like they wanted what some of their parents had, which was being able to raise a family on one income. Mm -hmm. And that is much more difficult now than it was a couple generations ago, right? Sure. They said, you know, we don't want to get married until we feel financially set and secure. And But waiting for that to happen... It can take a while, but meanwhile, they want children and they don't want to miss the years that, to do that. And so they go ahead and have children and have their family. But there's this idea that whereas older generations may have had this low-key wedding in the backyard where you don't spend any money and you start out poor together, they feel it's important to, you know, these are the, it's a generation who's the children of divorce. They they feel it's important to kind of be financially set and the, and it's just really hard to get there for a lot of people today. That's interesting because it's almost flipped from the way it always was because if we're being honest, there is a biological clock on a window on when you can have kids, but people are realizing there's not the same for marriage. You do the kids in that window where you have to have the kids, but the marriage that can wait. That's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. And now I'm covering economic inequality and a lot of these, these issues. Oh I, oh, I went and covered, I edited climate for five years, climate change and energy stories. That's something I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. because I find that entire area fascinating. There's so many pieces of climate change and where we're at with all of this. 
I'm going to ask you a very pointed, specific question here and ask you to narrow it down. If there was one thing that you wished the general public knew about climate change that they don't or it's not talked about, what is it? Uh, that's a really hard question. I, this is going to sound like a cop out, but I would say it's that, you know, we just really still don't know all the ways that warming is going to play out, right? I mean, you may have caught a recent story about research showing there's going to be more air turbulence on airplane flights. Uh, and it's clear air turbulence that, that pilots have a hard time seeing, you know, it's like, who saw that coming? And, you know, there will be more things like that. There's a really complicated ecosystems that are playing out here. And I think it speaks to, okay, the other second thing, maybe the eyes glaze over part of, of climate change here is that we really, really do need policies to uh, get us winding down off fossil fuels. I mean, there is incredible technology. The clean energy shift mm -hmm. is underway. It is, it is amazing. Wind and solar in so many places now are cheaper than coal or natural gas. And that is heartening. That is great. The market knows this. Businesses know this. Utility companies, this shift is underway, but it's not happening fast enough. And to make it go faster, we just really do need policies to push it. And, you know, not just the global climate talks, but, you know, obviously national policies, state policies, local, your city council, your county, you know, everyone has a role here to do something to just kind of keep it going and make it go faster. I grew up in Boston, but I live in Detroit now. So my Detroit bias is going to come out here. Where do electric vehicles fall into this whole equation? They're important. They're huge. Uh, but the electricity that they're going to be charged on needs to be clean also. Right. So it's all got to happen together. It's a huge it is a kind of an overwhelmingly huge thing. So the electricity, the our grid has to get cleaner. Right. It has to be, you know, more and more fueled by renewables. And then when you charge your electric car, it's going to be clean. The, the, what goes in versus what comes out. Got it. OK. Right. Right. But transportation is a huge piece of it. A lot of emissions. In fact, the biggest chunk in this country at, at the moment. So from there, you move on to issues of economic equality and tell me what you're doing now. This is also fascinating to me. Poverty, homelessness, a lot of housing again. The housing crisis has just exploded. It got worse during the pandemic as people kind of moved all over the place. Basically, we've got this massive shortage of houses after the big collapse, after the Great Recession in 2008. For a decade, the country did not build as much housing as our population growth demanded. So now we have this huge challenge of catching up at a time when construction is really expensive, land is expensive, the supply chain has been disrupted. You know, there's a wide acknowledgement of this and you see cities kind of putting more money toward this. The housing crisis has fueled the homelessness crisis. And you see, you know, millennials are so ready to move out on their own and it's crazy expensive for them. People worry they're not ever going to be able to buy a house or be able to afford children or something. You know, it's it's really tough. So that's what I'm grappling with now. And a lot of, the, you know, the racial inequities as well. I'm uh, wrapping up a story in zoning. You know, we've got a small trend starting and I think it's going to continue of some places ending their zoning mandates for single family homes, which have a pretty ugly history. It was used to keep out black families mm -hmm. in many cities. It, it's led to a lot of segregation. 
but it's it's a big key to try and build more housing. You have to allow the duplexes, the triplexes, the small apartment buildings in a lot of these areas, and states and cities are starting to do that. Are you seeing a big sea change in that, generally speaking, as different generations are coming up and ideals change a little bit, or am I just stereotyping there? No, I mean, I think since 2020, there's been, you know, the George Floyd, the the devastating video that everyone saw, the mm-hmm. protests for racial justice, it absolutely has seeped into policymaking to the goals that cities and states have to try and address racial inequities, along with the affordability crisis. It's all tied together. Absolutely. You have reported, Jennifer, on so many different areas and aspects and topics I'm wondering, two-part question, what motivates you? What kind of gets you going in the morning? And then also, what advice you would have for a current student or young reporter just starting out to be a successful reporter? Those are big questions. I think what I try and, you know, my colleagues at NPR also try, you're motivated by the real people who are living these situations. Our, you know, storytelling, it's age old. It goes back to humanity and telling stories about people is the heart of it. It can be about a policy change or an economic shift, but you have to illustrate that with the voices of real people and you'll learn so much from them. They're the first hand source always. Um, And I, you know, I would say for people going into journalism, that is going to hold true no matter what medium you go into. And actually it's, that's the other thing is it's all media now, right? So I spent a long time crafting the art of writing for radio, you know, the haiku of (laughs) getting every syllable, every syllable counts and, you know, infused with this ideal that, oh, it's much harder to write short than it is long, right? Of course, takes longer. It's, you know, rewriting, rewriting. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we have to learn to write for the website now. And by the way, take pictures when you're out there and maybe some video on your phone. Right. (laughs) So it's everything is multimedia now. And the more skills you can bring to all the different ways of telling stories, including on social media now, the more equipped you'll be for whatever outfit you would like to work for. It is interesting. You talk about the shift in all the different multimedia approaches and it not just being radio anymore. As someone who works full time in podcasting, I've seen that your company, NPR, has really been at the forefront of way ahead of the commercial radio companies in podcasting. You've been doing this since before it was cool. So <laughs> it, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that, on how you need to have that multimedia approach and think about presenting stories in so many different ways because listeners and audience consume it in so many different ways now. Right, right. Well, we may have been out there early, but everyone's there now. Everyone. <laughs> and, you know, truly, it's a lot of competition. It's a tough time. It is a tough time. And everyone's trying to figure it out. You know, we do all these polling now and, you know, people kind of are bombarded with so much news and you kind of skim. There's no way you can read everything. But it is heartening to know that there there is still, even among especially maybe younger generations, a desire for the deep dive. You know, the long podcast, the long uh, conversation or reported piece, there absolutely is a hunger for that. And that that is great. I don't think that Radio is changing. Young people don't even own radios, but there's always going to be some platform for the age-old tradition of oral storytelling. Well, Jennifer Ludden, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. Really appreciate your perspective and your career that, again, started back at the days of JPZ, like so many of our illustrious alumni. Thanks so much for your time today. 
Thank you, John. And thank you for doing this amazing series. It's so fun to listen to. Thank you very much. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.